Thanks so much. Um, in keep the passage open in front of you. Um, we're going to be looking closely at what the Lord has to say to us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us uh, your spirit, the one who authored the words of Scripture. And we pray that he would help us this morning to see and to hear what it is you are saying to us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would have humble hearts to listen and to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't start what you cannot finish. That should be the first rule of DIY, shouldn't it? I've learned that lesson. When it comes to DIY, I tend not to start anymore because I know that I will not finish. Come around our house and it is a testimony to many projects that have been started and many that have failed to finish. Laura's a bit the same with writing. There is a whole library full of books that she has started but never finished. I'm not allowed to read any of them, but I can imagine just kind of getting to like, I don't know, the midway through the book and it's just at that gripping moment and then a blank page follows. Don't start what you can't finish. Uh, and Joshua's concern, I think, in these final chapters is that Israel have started something amazing, but will they finish it? Let's have a think. Look to the future. First of all, look to the future. There's been a few times, actually, in Joshua where age has been a thing, has been talked about. We've been told before that Joshua is getting old, chapter 13. And Caleb, remember another key character, we saw him a couple of weeks back, he stands out because of his old age. And age comes up again in this chapter. Have a look at verse 1. After a long time had passed and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua, by then a very old man, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I am very old. Back in Joshua 13, Joshua was old and advanced in years. Chapter 23 is a long time later. So now he's very old and very advanced in years. And death is on his mind, verse 14. Now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And with death on his mind, Joshua wants to share these final words. Actually, chapter 22, 23, 24, they are all the last words of Joshua. Three speeches that he gives. It's quite an effort, isn't it? You know, not everything in the Bible is to be imitated. And giving three long speeches on your deathbed, that is, that's not necessary. But Joshua does. And when you near the end, it is, of course, natural to look back, isn't it? to reflect on, on your life and, and on happy times and moments of, of brilliance, moments of, of meaning, to, to reflect upon the Lord's faithfulness towards you. And Joshua does some of that. But what's interesting about Joshua is that in his last moments, he seems to be more concerned about the future. That, that isn't his own future. He's not concerned about the, the last remaining days that he has. No, his, his heart is for the people. His concern is for them. So he looks forward, longing for things to go well for the people that he will be leaving behind. So chapter uh, 23, verse 4. 
He says, remember how I have allotted us an inheritance for your tribes, all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea in the west. The Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. You see, he's looking forward. He wants them to fully enjoy this inheritance that God has given them, to take full possession of the land. Now, he knows that the Lord will be faithful to his promises. What he's less convinced by is that the people will be faithful to God. And actually, the rest of the speech, that's what it's all about, encouraging the people to be faithful. But before we get there, I just want to stop and And just reflect on the virtue of Joshua looking forward. Because he is looking forward, as I say, not to his own future. His concern isn't about himself. But he's looking forward to a future, Israel's future, that he will never see. And that he'll never experience. He cares deeply about what will happen to those that he leaves behind. I just want to say, those amongst us who are older, those who are perhaps more aware that time is short, this, I think, is something to imitate. Joshua's concern for those that he will leave behind. Now, I imagine that the closer the end comes, the easier it is to become increasingly self-concerned. And that is absolutely understandable, a failing body and a failing mind. Some days it must feel as though just surviving is enough. But let me urge you, don't lose sight of the future. Not so much your future, although that will be wonderful if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus, but the future of the church that you leave behind, those who remain. Let me encourage you to be concerned about their future through prayer. Some of the children here at Redeemer, some of the families here, you might never see them grow up. But pray for them, won't you? And be concerned about their future through the conversations that you have. I think the older you get, the more kind of freedom you have to say direct things to people and get away with it. Or or to ask difficult questions or to kind of pry and to poke into people's lives. Well, In the remaining years you have, use that advantage. Talk to people. Ask them about their walk with the Lord. Ask them how they're coping with singleness or marriage or parenting. Offer the wisdom of your many years and offer to pray. Care about the future of those that you will leave behind. And actually, it's true for all of us to some extent, isn't it? Young or old, we all have a responsibility to a future we might never see. We don't know when the Lord Jesus will return. We can't live our lives assuming that we will be the last generation of Christians. And that means we all must be willing to work hard at trying to build the kingdom of God, even if we won't see the fruit of our efforts. You know, Winchester Cathedral, as it stands today, was built over a period of 500 years between the 11th and 16th century. Just think about that. If you were a master craftsman creating beautiful stonework in 1251, 
you would be long dead before the final stones were put in place into the cathedral. But that didn't stop them working with care for that future, for a future that they would never see. Brothers and sisters, all of us need to be like Joshua. All of us need to be concerned about a future that we perhaps will never see. So we work hard at discipling our children, even though we might not be around to see the fruit of that discipleship. We work hard at building a church so that for generations to come, there will continue to be a strong, powerful, faithful, living church in Winchester. And we work hard at fighting for truth and life, for laws that will protect the innocent, to promote the things of Christ in the public square, even if we never see the fruit of our endeavors. See, look to the future and be concerned about a future that you might never see. And here's the thing, as we look to that future, what is it that Joshua is particularly concerned about? We've already said it's about the Israelites being faithful, remaining faithful to the Lord. So secondly, remain faithful because we can. Remain faithful because we can. Now as Joshua looks to the future, he longs for the people to take hold of this wonderful inheritance that God has given them, this land, this new home. He longs for them to build a kingdom to the glory of God. If you like, it's almost an opportunity to to build the world again. Recently, I've been listening to a podcast about the American War of Independence, the the beginning of the American state. And at the time, one of those pushing for independence was Thomas Paine. And in an essay called Common Sense, he wrote this, we have it in our hands to begin the world again. Great ambition, isn't it? To begin the world again. Now, there's a sense in which that is absolutely true for Israel as they enter into this land. The Lord, through Israel, is setting about recreating the world again, remaking the kingdom he planned back in Genesis 1 and 2. Through the Lord, Israel do actually have it in their hands to begin the world again. What do you need if you're going to rebuild the world? Faithfulness. Look what Joshua says in verse 8. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. If Israel are going to build the world again, rebuild God's kingdom to his glory, if they're going to settle into this new land, then what they'll need is to hold fast to the Lord. They will need to remain faithful to God. And what does that mean? What will it involve? Well, verse 6. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. You see, to remain faithful to God, to hold fast to the Lord, will require strength to obey. And Joshua is clear. Faithfulness requires obedience to all of God's law. All that is written in the book of the law, he says. But then there is a focus to that obedience, a center to it. He says, verse 7, Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. Joshua has 
the first two of the Ten Commandments in mind as he writes these words. We'll get them on the screen. First commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. That the first commandment is about who you worship, the one true God. Second commandment is about how you worship him, not through idols or images. You see, what is at the heart of obedience that Joshua is calling God's people to? Wholehearted devotion to the Lord. That is what it means to be faithful to God. Don't turn to the left nor to the right, but keep the Lord at the center of your heart. Make sure it is the Lord alone who consumes the deepest allegiance and longing of your heart. And that isn't easy, is it? Wholehearted allegiance. You know, if Joshua said, be somewhat devoted to the Lord. Be, be mostly, mainly devoted to the Lord. That, that I think I could manage. But wholehearted devotion. You know, my allegiance to God battles with my devotion to other things. To devotion to, to comfort and ease. Devotion to, to self and, and reputation. Or, or to wealth and a nice life. And it's hard, isn't it? To, to live a life fully orientated around the Lord. In fact, it sometimes feels an impossible ask that we could do that. But what is impossible for us is possible for God. Joshua goes on in verse 9. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. Israel will be able to remain faithful because the Lord is fighting for them. Israel will be able to push back those nations that still live among them and to resist their ethos and values and religion because God is fighting for them. And that is true for us as well. We can be wholeheartedly, truly, fully devoted to the Lord. We can resist the temptation to turn to the right or to the left. To, to orientate our lives around uh, things that are other than God. Why? Because the Lord fights for us. The Lord works within us. In Philippians, Paul puts it like this in chapter 2, beyond the screen. Therefore, my dear friends, have you, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Remain faithful because you can. The Lord is fighting for us. The Lord is working in us with all his power and goodness and wisdom that we might remain faithful to him. Remain faithful to the Lord because you can. Now I think we're very slow to believe this, aren't we? I think we, we, we live 
as, as though sin and straying from the Lord is just inevitable. We look to the day ahead and we think, it's inevitable at some point I'm going to lose it with the kids or I'll give in to self-pity or I'll give in to bitterness or I'll give in to envy or whatever it might be. Or we think, I hate the fact that I'm overly critical or that I'm prone to anger, but I'm never really going to change. Is that true? It is the Lord who works in you. It is the Lord who fights for you. The awesome Lord who set the stars in space. He is the one who fights that you might remain faithful to him. That propensity to be critical and ungrateful and harsh, that does not have to be part of you. That tendency towards greed and self-indulgence, that is not inevitable. It's the Lord who fights for you and within you by his spirit. Remain faithful because we can. But finally, remain faithful because we must. In verse 11, Joshua brings us back to being faithful. He says, so be very careful to love the Lord your God. Be careful to remain faithful to the Lord, to love the Lord. Now, how do you do it this time? Before it was about obedience. What is it this time? How do you remain faithful? How do you love the Lord? You do it by not falling in love. In verse 12, Joshua thinks about the other people living in the land. And he says, do not ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you. And do not intermarry with them and associate with them. You see, remain faithful to the Lord. Love the Lord by not falling in love. By not falling in love with men or women from the surrounding nations. Now first, this could sound a little bit racist. Only Israelites are good enough for you to marry. Non-Israelites are inferior. But that can't be what God is saying. We've already seen in Joshua that non-Israelites have joined the community and embraced life in God. And Presumably, they will intermarry with the people who are already in Israel. So this isn't about race and it's not about ethnicity. Instead, it is about religion. Don't marry someone who worships another god. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because when you marry someone, then normally your heart becomes entwined with theirs. And whatever is at the center of their life becomes increasingly at the center of your life. Marry someone who worships another god, and more often than not, you will worship their god. So love the Lord, remain faithful to the Lord by not falling in love. And I think that's why this command continues into the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39, A woman is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to Christ. Christians are free to marry anyone as long as they belong to the Lord. If marriage came up when our kids were younger, we'd teach them about who they 
could marry? Number one, not someone from the family. Number two, not someone of the same sex. Number three, not an unbeliever. Although for a while, I don't think they quite grasped point one. Eliza and Elijah were convinced they would marry each other. You hang around them, actually. They do sound like a married old couple at times, but that is all cleared up now. Now, we didn't teach them that, and the Bible doesn't teach that because we think non-Christians are less valuable or less worthy. No, the Bible says don't marry a non-Christian first for your sake because if you do, then at best following Christ will be increasingly hard. At worst, you just give up. And don't marry a non-Christian for their sake because if you manage to stick with Jesus in that marriage, then you'll never be able to share yourself fully with them. Sure, when you marry, you'll promise them all that I am, I give to you. But the truth is, you'll never be able to share everything with them. And I don't think that's particularly fair. And don't marry a non-Christian for God's sake. Show the Lord that you are devoted to him above all else. By not falling in love, by not marrying someone who doesn't belong to the Lord. Now look, this is not the unforgivable sin. I'm aware that there are many Christians who do end up marrying a non-Christian, and the, the response, the application of this isn't to therefore end that marriage. But you will need to work hard, and you'll need to pray, and you'll need the support of others. But Joshua is saying, be faithful, love the Lord by not falling in love. And be faithful because we must. Look what happens to those who fail to love the Lord, who fail to remain faithful. Verse 13, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes. If the Israelites turn their backs on God, if they marry men and women who worship other gods, then life will feel burdensome. It will feel like slavery. The nations will entrap them. They will be whips on their backs and thorns in their eyes. If the Israelites are not wholly devoted to the Lord, it'll be harder and harder to stay faithful at any level to the Lord. Of course, that's true for us as well, isn't it? If we are not wholly devoted to the Lord then life, the Christian life, will feel more and more burdensome. It will feel more and more like slavery. Jesus calls us to follow him. And we do. We, we step out. We, we walk behind him. He walks alongside us. And the Christian life is a joy. Obedience seems easy. The presence and joy of Jesus in our life is amazing. But then gradually our eyes and our hearts start looking back towards the world around. We want what the world wants. We look for security where the world looks for security. We look for meaning and, and validation where the world looks. And our hearts become divided between Christ and the world. Following Christ feels more and more burdensome. 
It feels hard to choose Christ, to choose selfless love, to choose self-control, to choose patience and obedience. His word, his law, his way, it feels like slavery rather than freedom. And Jesus feels more and more distant. If that sounds like you, and my hunch is that there will be a number of us that this is describing, if the Christian life is beginning to feel more and more burdensome and like slavery, then it might be that the Lord has withdrawn somewhat from you because you have withdrawn from him. As the writer to the Hebrews put it in Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Throw off whatever it is that is hindering you. Turn your heart back to Jesus and he will strengthen and perfect your faith. And do it soon, because one day it will be too late. Just as we close, let me read verse 15 to you. Just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come to you, so he will bring on you all the evil things he has threatened, until the Lord your God has destroyed you from this good land. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. You see, remain faithful because we must. If we don't, not, not only will our Christian life now feel burdensome and feel like slavery, our life will end in disaster. It will end in hell. We will be cast out from the land of blessing. Just as the Lord has promised a future blessing to all those who trust Jesus and remain faithful to him, so he has promised future judgment on those who don't. I know that many of us have drifted from the Lord at times, and our hearts have been divided. As we close, look, the great thing about the future is that it hasn't happened yet. And the great thing about our Lord is that his mercy is new every morning and his passion and love for his people means he does not give up easily upon us. We may wander from him, but he continues to pursue us. Twice in verses 15 and 16, the Lord warns Israel that they will be cut off from the land. As the story unfolds, sadly, that is what happened. They were cut off. But the Lord was not done. In Isaiah 53, the chapter speaks of an Israelite who always remained faithful to the Lord, even to the point of death. And yet what happened to him? 53 verse 7 could be on the screen. He was oppressed and afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. You see, the Lord Jesus is the one 
who is cut off from the land of blessing. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The curse fell on Jesus, so it need not fall on us, on those who turn back to the Lord, even if it's for the umpteenth time, on those who remain faithful because we can, and those who remain faithful because we must. We find grace and mercy and patience in our Father and in the Son, Lord Jesus. Moment of quiet, and then I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, the Christian life is not straightforward at times. We confess, Lord, that often our hearts do feel somewhat divided. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would start each day aware that your mercy is new every morning. That if we have lived a divided life, we can still find grace and forgiveness as we turn back to you. We thank you that your son, the Lord Jesus, experienced the curse of being cut off that we might never need to. I pray that your spirit day by day would help us to remain faithful because we can and remain faithful because we must. In Jesus' name, amen.